This episode of Hearsay is sponsored by the Wheels of Justice, a partnership against cancer benefiting the Children's Colorado Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. For more information, visit wheelsofjusticecycling.org. As of the end of January, the Senate has confirmed 85 federal judges under President Donald Trump. The dozens of appointments stand out as one point of efficiency for an administration defined by chaos. Trump is already making a huge impact on the nation's courts. The courts are on the middle of a reboot, with conservatives and the Constitution in the driver's seat. Less than two years into his presidency, Trump had nominated two Supreme Court justices. And with two justices in their 80s, a third Supreme Court pick for Trump seems like a real possibility. It would give his administration a chance to solidify a conservative majority on the country's highest court by tipping the scales to six to three. The confirmation fights for his Supreme Court picks have been fierce, and activist groups from religious to civil rights organizations have spoken up about the future of contentious policies, like reproductive rights and immigration, under a more conservative Supreme Court. But presidential administrations and interest groups have pushed for decades to pack courts with judges they believe will make decisions aligning with their agendas. I talked with a few experts to find out how we got to today's climate of heavily politicized high court appointments. This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi. Stephen Collis is a partner at Holland & Hart and chairs the firm's First Amendment practice group. He explained conservative versus liberal philosophies don't mean the same thing in the political and judicial realms. So even though attitudes toward specific issues tend to have a lot of overlap, Supreme Court justices sometimes take positions that seem surprising from a political perspective. In one example... Chief Justice John Roberts ended up the swing vote in a 2012 case that upheld the Affordable Care Act's individual insurance requirement. He believed it stayed within Congress's power to impose taxes. From a political perspective, his defense of the Affordable Care Act seemed surprising. But the opinion didn't really depart from Roberts' philosophy of textualism. It's a judicial approach that favors interpreting laws by their plain text. So what all that means for Trump possibly getting a third Supreme Court appointment is, a 6-3 to three conservative majority doesn't automatically mean total victory for politically conservative policy agendas. What we're really talking about is certain judges have a judicial philosophy where when they apply that philosophy, it's most likely most cases are going to turn out in a way that political conservatives like. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a one-to-one correlation between political conservatives and people who use these judicial philosophies that end up in the results that political conservatives like, if if that makes sense. So uh, just to give an example, or or to talk about it a little bit, there's different types of judicial philosophies. And you have, you have originalists. It, it, it all occurs on a spectrum. You've got originalists on one end, and you've got what we call pragmatists often on the other end. And, and I guess the furthest end of that spectrum on the pragmatism side would, would be judges who believe there are no laws at all, and they can just decide any case they want to based on their gut feeling. Now, that judge doesn't exist, but if they did, that's where they would be on the far end of the spectrum. And on the far other end of the spectrum, you have people who would say, you know, we're going to interpret this language according to its plain meaning no matter what without any room at all for any type of reasonable interpretation. They would be on the far other extreme. And then there's a range of people in between those. There's been a lot of buzz about how many federal judges the Trump administration has appointed. And it seems to be maybe the one point of efficiency in Donald Trump's 
presidency. We're just about exactly two years in. Obviously, his most high-profile appointments have been his two to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. I saw a November report from Politico saying his 84 judge appointments at that point way outpaced President Obama's in his first two years. So there's a lot of talk about Trump reshaping the federal courts. But do you think there's a significance to the number of judges he's been appointing or not? I think there's a significance to it simply because it's clear that they came in with a goal of making sure that they filled vacancies in the court as quickly as possible. And this has been a strategy of both sides of the political aisle for a very long time. So whatever criticisms people have of the Trump administration and what appears to be a lot of um, chaos throughout the administration, they have been clearly very organized when it comes to the courts. So they are putting a lot of judges on the federal appellate courts and on the Supreme Court that align with what they think are the proper judicial philosophies, and they've been incredibly efficient at it. I think that's probably the most significant because what it means is is even if he's only in there for one term, he will have reshaped the courts. I don't want to say reshaped them as if they were one thing for 200 years and suddenly Trump is changing them. Obama shifted the courts more towards a pragmatic view, and Trump is now shifting them back towards an originalist view. The federal, And again, I'm talking about the federal appellate courts and the United States Supreme Court. Something else that isn't new is the influence of outside groups on confirmations. CU Law professor Craig Conneth said organizations from the NAACP to pro-life groups historically have shaped the process. But he talked about what he sees as an outsized role of one outside group in particular in influencing court picks under the Trump administration. And so, and so 85% of all his nominees are, have been members, card-carrying members of the Federalist Society. What's interesting is that here, it's the Trump administration that's taken, has, has used a list effectively from FedSoc, as, as the lawyers call them. FedSoc started in 1982. It's a conservative legal organization that aims to make over the U.S. system in line with an originalist view of the Constitution. All five of the Supreme Court's current conservative justices have been members of FedSoc. Certainly once the nomination is made, historically outside groups have had um, huge amounts of influence in the modern era from the NAACP to pro-life to pro-choice groups. Um, What's been different under the Trump presidency is that um, it's not just after the nomination is made, but really before the nomination is made, that outside groups have had a role. Um, When Trump was a candidate, he met with Leonard Leo, who is um, senior in the Federalist Society, which is um, an organization that was started in 1982 to um, get more um, conservative-leaning judges on the bench. And um, he basically said to Leo, hey, you know, come up with a list that I can use. Um, and, um, and then when he won the presidency unexpectedly, it's really been the Federalist Society that has you know, helped push the nominations through. But... Um, but, you know, the Bush, in, under the Bush administration, you know, um, Harriet Meyer, as many believe, was derailed for various reasons, but also because she was not a member of the Federalist Society. Albert Gonzalez, former attorney general, um, he, he has publicly talked about how um, he felt ostracized to a certain extent because he was not a member of the Federalist Society and was viewed by suspicion for not being a member. So the Federalist Society has really done a great job uh, from the conservative point of view of getting judges with like-minded views um, onto the federal bench. But Stevens said Chief Justice John Roberts has a lot of concern for maintaining the Supreme Court's role as an independent branch. And that guides how he believes the court should frame its decisions. 
he is very worried, and he said so publicly, about the court not being perceived as simply another arm of the political branches. And so he does take time, I think, to protect that reputation. He works very hard for the court to issue narrow opinions that aren't going to have a broad sweeping effect on things. For example, late last November, a federal judge in Mississippi struck down a restrictive abortion statute passed the previous March. Stephen said the legislature's end goal is probably to get it to the Supreme Court. But if the court ever takes the case, because of the concern for narrow rulings, Stephen said it's unlikely to mean a complete gutting of Roe v. Wade. If that ever does get to the justices, I, don't, I would not expect an, over, an overall just complete overhaul of Roe v. Wade and its progeny. I just don't see Justice Roberts signing on to that kind of a decision. It'd be a very narrow ruling specific to that law, trying not to unsettle everything else, because he doesn't, he does not want the court to lose whatever credibility it still has with the public. In my view, the court should have probably much more credibility with the public than it does. I don't think it's nearly as political, having clerked for the chief judge of the Tenth Circuit, having spent a lot of time with judges behind the scenes, they are not anywhere near as political as the media talk about them being, and certainly as lay people think they are. Um, and I think it's important to him to try to preserve that reputation of the, of the justices if he can. But Craig had a different opinion about the risk of partisanship in Congress affecting how the Supreme Court operates. And, and the fact is that Congress can do all sorts of things to the court if it doesn't like the court. Um, it can, you know, the, the, the Constitution says the court must hear only a very narrow range of matters, matters involving states, where the states are litigants, or matters involving foreign councils, consuls and things like that. But there, in every other case, Congress could theoretically under the Constitution just strip jurisdiction from the Supreme Court. Um, it could limit the budget of the Supreme Court heavily. It could um, you know, proceed with impeachment against justices. So, um, so, that, so, so, the, so the drama could really escalate in really problematic ways. The concept of packing the courts with judges who have a particular ideological bent isn't new. President Franklin D. Roosevelt even tried to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court when the ones during his presidency were striking down his New Deal policies. But what we might call the modern era of court packing goes back to around the 1950s. So I understand we can trace court packing as we think of it today back to, you know, the 1950s or so when a liberal majority on the Supreme Court started reading more and more rights of all different kinds into the Constitution. They ran the gamut from prisoners' rights to reproductive rights, which obviously culminated in Roe v. Wade. And so then push really started coming from the political right to get judges appointed they thought would make decisions in favor of their interests. I mean, can you talk about the different kinds of rights that were getting expanded that led to that sort of pushback? Sure. And, and this goes back to the various judicial philosophies that different judges will apply when they, when they interpret the Constitution. Really, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, you had folks on what they consider the progressive side of the political left trying to make changes through legislation. And they just weren't having the success that they wanted, largely because they couldn't get the political clout they needed to pull that off. They couldn't get the legislation passed at the state level that they wanted. So, or they couldn't pass an amendment to the federal constitution, which is uh, very hard to do. So from a strategic perspective, what they realized was that they were better off um, trying to interpret already existing words in the constitution 
as opposed to uh, trying to pass legislation or get an amendment, and that would get them the results they wanted. So they were looking for judges who would interpret the Constitution in a way that could be that could expand rights. Um, so you started what you started to see then from that is a much broader definition of the Constitution, and this is about the time where we start hearing the phrase "it's a living Constitution." You had a lot of justices and politicians talking about it in terms of uh, Darwinian evolutionism, that the Constitution is a living document that changes and grows along with society, and our understanding of the meaning of the words in it should change as society changes. So through that, they were able to take the words in the Constitution and expand their meaning to find more rights. So one example is the word liberty that uh, is in the 14th Amendment. From, that, from the word liberty, they found the right to privacy. So they interpreted the word liberty to include the word privacy. And then from the right to privacy, they found a right to use birth control. And from that, they found more and more rights, going all the way up to the right to have an abortion, and then continuing on from their uh, rights supporting LGBT rights. But that's not the only place where they expanded rights. As they were engaging in this, they found other places that broaden the interpretation of the Constitution as well. So they expanded prisoners' rights, they expanded citizens' rights versus the police. We take it for granted today, but things like Miranda warnings, you know, when you, we talk about you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney, things like that, all of that came during this period of expansion of constitutional rights. And it's often affiliated with the Warren Court and later the Burger Court. So the 1950s, was this period where there was this massive expansion of rights. Uh, states' abilities to regulate were largely curtailed. Uh, prisoners' rights were expanded. Reproductive rights were expanded. LGBTQ rights were expanded. Affirmative action programs were upheld. And there was a time when, as they were doing this, there was some blowback, but it wasn't a massive movement. But eventually, when we got to Roe v. Wade and we're in the 1970s, about 50% of the country said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is getting too much. And if every human desire becomes a human right or becomes a constitutional right, then nothing is a constitutional right. They all cancel each other out. And so what they started doing is presidents started trying to find the judges and justices who would interpret the Constitution much more strictly, um, or at least adhere to the text more. And they started slowly putting these people on the court as much as they could uh, until uh, the mid-1980s, where at least at the Supreme Court, they had a majority of justices. And those people who consider themselves more towards originalism, or at least towards what's called textualism, have had a majority on the court now for almost 40 years. The Supreme Court's extension of constitutional rights came along with an expansion of its judicial power around the same time. Craig explained the court incorporated the first 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights into the Due Process Clause. Not only the federal government, but state governments also had to comply with the Bill of Rights. This meant that it gave them the power to strike down numerous state laws that didn't conform with them. So in addition to looking at equal protection issues, it also began to look at a range of constitutional protections um, that, uh, that, that, and applied them to states. Craig said the Brown v. Board of Education decision in particular ushered in the era of controversy and drama around Supreme Court appointments. Before that decision... Nominees didn't usually appear for their confirmation hearings. But after the Supreme Court struck down segregation laws, some factions of Congress began demanding nominees appear to answer questions. 
But as soon as Brown versus Board of Education came down, the Southern uh, conservatives um, really began to demand hearings from every nominee. And from that, day, from that day on, every nominee to the Supreme Court appeared before the Judiciary Committee. So that same year, John Marshall Harlan appeared before the committee um, and was asked questions effectively about segregation. Um, there was, part of Stewart had to appear before the committee. In 1967, uh, Thurgood Marshall appeared before the committee and was asked, a range of questions, some of them quite uh, derogatory, um, some of them quite troubling. And so Brown really changed the direction in terms of hearing. One thing that gets talked a lot about today is when nominees seemingly give a lot of non-answers when they get asked questions about where they stand on Mm -hmm. particular issues that they might be asked to rule on. So when committee appearances by nominees became the norm, were they ever expected to give straightforward answers about how they would rule on particular issues? Well, they were certainly asked. So when Harlan appeared in 1954, he was asked what his uh, views on international treaties were because the Southern senators were really worried that treaties would be used to limit segregation. He refused to get, give answers, and those senators voted against him. And, and, and the standard has always been generally to avoid giving answers. But let me, so maybe I can ask you about your concern when you were in the Bush White House. Did you have any, uh, any involvement in Bush's effort to uh, support a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage? So, uh, Senator, when I was uh, in the White House, uh, he, that was part of the, uh, something that he uh, talked about, uh, of course, uh, at that point in time. Did, did you express an opinion about it then yourself? Yeah, as staff secretary, things related to that speeches he gave would have crossed um, my desk, as I've discussed right. before. I'm not privy to your documents at that time. Right. Did you ever express your they, opinions? Did you ever express your opinions about same-sex marriage? Uh, those I, documents that I do not have privy right. that will one day come out. I, I don't recall. That's then Judge Brett Kavanaugh getting grilled on whether he took a firm policy stance on same-sex marriage. And maybe detachment from the process makes it easy to criticize nominees for dodging questions. What's interesting is that in 1959, um, a lawyer, a young lawyer by the name of William Rehnquist, wrote an article in the Harvard Law Review saying that nominees should be pressed on this and senators should, be vote, should vote based on those answers. Of course, when Rehnquist was before the committee himself, he noted that maybe his views were not fully formed and he didn't realize the gravity of the situation when he wrote the article. It's hard to imagine the vanilla answers Supreme Court nominees give during their hearings actually change senators' minds on how to vote. Any nominee likely already has left a paper trail that speaks to their philosophies on the issues they're questioned about. Even if nominees don't reveal their personal political leanings, senators try to tease out how their judicial ideologies line up with current politics. So if confirmation hearings are an extension of an overly partisan process, then what could be done to limit the fighting over Supreme Court appointments? Some academic circles have put out the idea of Supreme Court term limits. One 18-year term has been tossed out. But Craig said the merits of the idea are one thing, but actually implementing it would be a different story. But it's hard to... Um, it's it's hard for a president to say, okay, fine, this nominee onwards, it's an 18-year term because that nominee is his or her nominee, right? So I think that that's going to be hard to get get buy-in. I think one option that I've heard is for the Senate to say, okay, 10 years from now, we don't know who the president's going to be. 
And so 10 years from now, and we don't know what the Senate's going to be like. So 10 years from now, this is the law that's going to be in place. But of course, the Senate or the presidency or wh whoever is in power 10 years from now might have the power to reverse it. The other question is a constitutional question, right? Can Congress pass a law that uh, requires that of justices? Where is it that says that federal judges are lifetime appointments? Is that, is that in the Constitution? Where is that? It says um, shall hold their term um, so, so long as you know, they, they engage in good behavior, et cetera, right? And it gives impeachment power. It doesn't explicitly say this is a lifetime appointment. Um, but one argument would be the Constitution clearly delineates what ends a, a federal judgeship, and that is bad behavior or impeachment or whatever. It does not say term limits. And by excluding term limits and explicitly including the other conditions that would suggest that term limits are not one of the possibilities that the Constitution contemplated. So I asked Stephen about the significance of Trump appointing a third Supreme Court justice, if that opportunity comes up. And a lot of these issues that we've been talking about are as top of mind today as they were a few decades ago. And a solidified conservative majority on the Supreme Court seems like a very real possibility in the next few years with two liberal justices who are at least 80. If President Trump has the chance to appoint a third Supreme Court justice, how do you think that could affect strategies for interest groups on the left for hot issues right now, like reproductive rights or immigration cases? Well, obviously, those people who are adopting a litigation strategy to, get, to achieve the outcomes they need will have to think long and hard about whether or not they want to push the cases that they're interested in to the Supreme Court. Right now, there is still a five to four split on the court, and you still have the possibility that uh, now Justice Roberts, who is the current swing vote, could break their way. But I think already you've got people on the left thinking to themselves that there are certain cases they simply cannot bring to the Supreme Court, at least for the next decade or more. And there are probably people on the right who are thinking, we need to get as many cases as possible up to the Supreme Court right now. If the shift happens, as you described, where, let's say, Justice Ginsburg would passes away or resigns, and Justice Trump, or President Trump is able to uh, appoint a third person to the court, you would then have a six to three uh, majority. Most of those six would be either originalists or textualists. And I think you would clearly see from folks on the, on the left a desire to keep certain cases away from them and probably a hesitancy to bring up their own cases. I've already seen actually some of this scuttlebutt just out there where folks on the left are saying, it's time to abandon litigation as a strategy to achieving rights. We need to move to it in a different direction. And they may be going back to trying to push for legislation or trying to win in the court of public opinion through Hollywood, news media, other, other avenues and abandon the courts. Those were my conversations with Stephen Colas and Craig Conneth about the history of court packing. I'm Julia Carty for Hearsay.